millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to the Goldberg Chart Podcast, Gary Trust, Billboard Senior Director of Charts. And hey guys, it's Trevor Anderson, a chart manager here at Billboard. All right, a lot to get to this week. We'll recap as always the Billboard Hot 100, where you'll never guess what's number one. So we'll talk about that. 19 guesses, the first 18 don't count. Uh, plus a new song in the top 10, we'll talk about that track. And Drake makes yet more history. Been not quiet, but compared to 2018, Drake hasn't totally been making headlines the same way this year, but this week, pretty big week for Drake on both the Billboard 200 albums chart and the Hot 100. Plus, we haven't done one of these uh, flashback episodes in a while. We're going back 25 years to the Hot 100 this week, 25 years ago, 1994. So uh, yeah, we're going to count down the top 25 songs this week, August 1994, and chat with a very special guest, Lisa Loeb, about her debut smash, Stay I Missed You. So it's all coming up on this week's Billboard Charpy podcast. First up, this week's top 10. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Number 10. I got red, I got blue, what you want? The Chanel, Balenciaga, Louis Vuitton. She know I got the Fanny Prada when I am alone. I needed me a dire rider, I need me the one. I started from the bottom, you can see the way. Number 9. I want you out of my head. I want you out of my bed. Number eight. Number seven. I don't care when I'm with my baby. All the bad things disappear. You're making me feel maybe I am somebody. I can deal with the bad. Number six. Ain't never got you know it being modest. Popping shipping only cause you know you popping. Yeah, you got it, girl. You got it. Hey. You got it, girl. You got it. Number five. Can we just talk? Can we just talk? Talk about where we're going before we get lost. 
number four. Number two. Number one. Yeah, I'm gonna take my horse to the old town road. I'm gonna ride till I can't no more. I'm gonna take my horse to the old town road. I'm gonna ride till I can't no more. I got the horses in the back. Woo, there we go. Nineteen weeks for Old Town Road at number one on the Hot 100. Lil Nas X, Billy Ray Cyrus, at this point only competing among itself in the history books uh, to see maybe maybe we can get the first song with 20 weeks at number one going forward. 21, the song can drink almost. There's just a lot to, I mean, this this is just the thing that's out there. Um, and even to say uh, record extending at this point, even that's getting a little old at this point. It broke the record of 16 weeks. Now it's up to three more weeks and uh, a reader, uh, Jake Rivera. Uh, wrote in saying Jake, that, Jake, yeah, uh, you, uh, we, a very constant trial yeah, watcher said that uh, by now having three weeks more than the old record, no one's ever gone that far past the record since end of the road back in 1992 when it got 13 weeks. Old record was 10. Oh yeah. Yeah. True. Jake, Jake, yeah. look at you. But yeah, I mean, 19 weeks, number one, I mean, it's broken, not, not just the hot 100 record, but of course, you know, record extending on streaming, Streams, of course, like, you know, as we are well aware, have been the big factor keeping the song at number one. And this week, uh, down to 58.8 million, so just a little under 60 million. So it's down 13%, but still over 20 million more streams than the number two track this week, which is uh, No Guidance, Chris Brown featuring Drake. So still a a 20 million gap on streaming. Um, That's starting to come down, but, you know, I mean, if you're you're surprised the song is still holding on for so long, it's just... I mean, it's just one of those rare things that captures attention so long and, and so much. And I know people have obviously been rooting for it, supporting it. And we've seen Panini come up, but Old Town Road is still just, it just, I mean, at this point, I don't know what can stop it from just being such a monster. Like e- even just a few weeks after the record, it's still, still, I mean, almost 60 million streams. That's wild. So we're we're taping this on Tuesday afternoon, and uh, we're planning to post it on Thursday. And I don't know what news will have come out in between, but there's an artist you keep thinking Trevor maybe could come along with new music and could finally knock out Old Town Road. Um, isn't there someone you've mentioned? Mm, what people thinking Rihanna is on the way? Did I say that? I didn't. You 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 hinted strongly at it. Did I miss this? I must have missed this. I was I was gone for the last weekend. Is, is Rihanna? Is she did she do something? Just saying that's an artist. You have you heard you about mentioned? this? We'll see what happens. What do you know? Right? We'll wait a minute. Gar- wait a minute. Wait a minute. Navy, y'all need to blow up Gary's Twitter. Gary knows something. Gary about to be the admiral of the navy out here. Uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. Okay. Well, I mean. <laughs> If there's any time to strike, I mean, now's the time. People people itching for something to take out Old Town Road. So, uh, Rihanna, okay, that would be very welcome. Uh, even if it's not that, 
but it, it seems like a bad guy by Billie Eilish. So that's that's losing in points just like Old Town Road. They're sort of falling equally at this point. But it kind of feels like Old Town Road maybe could fall enough. And if a uh, bad guy hangs on, there's a chance for it to slip in thinking kind of that – backs into number one yeah, rather than taking it. Yeah, Kind of thinking with the VMAs uh, coming up, maybe there will be some extra buzz on that. Although there, there could be for, for both songs, uh, I suppose. But there, it could be that uh, Senorita is gaining. So there's a chance that could uh, make its way up uh, – too, but I just looking at the way uh, everything is trending at this point, I kind of feel like I'd be surprised if uh, I feel like next week it, it really could get the twentieth week at number one. But after that, I feel like at that point we're finally going to be having uh, battles again uh, at the top of the chart, really much closer with whether it's Bad Guy, whether it's uh, Senorita, maybe uh, Lizzo, New Rihanna, apparently possibly in the mix. something new. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack. Um, I guess also I, I do want to give my favorite mention to to Bad Guy number two for a ninth week. So it's coming up. Uh, we have the number one record set in 2019. We could have the number two record tied or maybe even broken. Uh, most so- most weeks are number two for a song to get to number one, as we mentioned last week, is ten weeks. Uh, Missy Elliott, who will be at the VMAs, getting that Michael Jackson Video Vanguard Award. That I know, and I think it's one of the great things that a lot of people have really on the internet been pushing for missy to get that for a long time so it's great to see that she's going to get there and the internet can change things uh but missy elliott 10 weeks number two work it and also foreigner waiting for a girl like you so billy eilish just one week from tying that record two weeks from breaking it so again not you know maybe that's some it's a weird consolation prize to get the number two record but i mean you go down in billboard history for sure so yeah, a lot of it is, is timing because uh, with Foreigner's song, it was when Physical by Olivia Newton-John had a long run at number one. Uh, Donald Lewis in the 90s with I Love You Always Forever just happened to be stuck uh, below uh, Macarena. So just timing sometimes. Yeah, Missy's uh, 10 Weeks of Number Two was was really all to Eminem, Lose Yourself. So yeah, it's just one of those things. And I guess you're going to have Old Town Road and Bad Guy in that same pairing. Just one of those things that... You know, had it been any other, just any other song not been out at the time, it would have made it for you. All right, last thing, do want to mention, if you are keeping track of all the stats and all the records that Old Town Road has broken this year, uh, you got two more to add to the list this week. 19 weeks at number one on both the Hot R&B Hip Hop Songs chart and 19 weeks at number one on the Hot Rap Songs chart. Both of those breaking the record uh, that 18 weeks shared different songs across both charts on R&B hip-hop songs, it was Drake's One Dance that had 18 weeks from 2016. And on the rap songs chart, it was uh, Drake's Hotline Bling. Also, Iggy's Fancy with Charlie XCX from 2014 and uh, Missy Elliott's Hot Boys. So another Missy mention this week. Missy getting a lot of, a lot of airtime coming up to the VMAs. Uh, but now all of those that once were record holders now in the shadow of Old Town Road. So, I mean, at some point we're going to have to just kind of keep this – ongoing list of just what what did old town road exactly like how many records did it take away from everybody this this year but that is two more to add to the stockpile for Lil nas x all right uh, also in the top 10 i heard a new song back at number eight it's brand new on the entire hot 100 it's ariana grande and social house with boyfriend uh, ariana's 14th hot 100 top 10 and uh, part that keeps hitting me is uh, most interesting about that she's almost doubled her total in just over a year right So 
eight top tens. And then uh, No Tears Left to Cry came along. She's now had six since, just since uh, May 2018. So uh, second most in that span with Post Malone after Drake, who had uh, 13 with his big uh, year last year. But yeah, it seemed like Ariana's had this total breakthrough, obviously, with uh, Thank You Next and Seven Rings earlier this year. But yeah, six top tens in the past year or so after having eight in a few years before that. So just another way to show that Ariana's absolutely been having really her biggest year or so in the last year. Yeah, and you know, sometimes these these sort of uh, feature collaborations or where they're not really your like album single, sometimes they can not, you know, not do quite as well. I mean, there's still buzz around the artist, but it's because it's not that lead single from the next album, necessarily the sound it's going to be. It can, you know, fizzle out a little bit, but obviously, I mean, to be top 10, you know, that just goes to show, you know, even sort of non Ariana album projects, there's still so much heat around her, so much interest, so much buzz that, you know, she can just grab a top 10, just kind of willy nilly like that. Also, we know that I think the Charlie's Angels soundtrack that she's going to help curate or, or or be involved in in some heavy capacity coming out, I, th- I think this year, maybe November, if I'm not crazy. Um, but, I mean, another project that just goes to show, you can probably expect a couple hits off that too, just based off, you know, I mean, she really is like the, the queen of pop at the moment. Yeah, and this song is really getting uh, the full radio push. It's already uh, top 20 at pop radio, and it's it's being fully promoted as, as the next Ariana single. And, yeah. It's a good song. On top of everything, it's really catchy. Oh, oh, trust issues. Oh, 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 trust issues. Oh, oh, All right, and we want to talk about trust uh, if you're a fan of Billboard chart records that are not Old Town Road, here's one to keep your eye on that is coming up very, very close. And I think especially in a way that I don't think a lot of people saw it coming in 2019. Talking Drake. Closing in on the record for most songs ever to chart on the Hot 100. He's number one this week on the Billboard 200 albums chart with uh, the Care Package, which this is this is this is great. This is what I love about it is it's a bunch of songs that Drake had put out, you know, some teasers, maybe some some possible singles, just some random projects over the course of the last decade. And, you know, it occurred to him or somebody that, hey, you know, these songs that are floating out there on YouTube or SoundCloud or on bootlegs. Why don't we just put that together and, you know, give give the people what they want? And so he did that. Turns around. Look at that. Got a number one album this year. Didn't have to record a single track. It's a number one album. That, to me, is just wild. Now, how that works on the Hot 100 is some of those songs debut on the Hot 100 for the first time. Uh, pushes him to 203 career entries on the chart. That includes both his lead and featured projects. And he's only four short of tying the Glee cast record of 207. And I mean, again, if Drake didn't have to record any new songs to get that, to get even that close to the record this year, you can guarantee that, and you know, if he finds out about it, maybe next week, certainly with the next album, I mean, that record is Drake's for the taking just whenever and however he wants it. And both of those totals uh, show how music consumption has changed in recent years. And uh, both Glee and Drake, they both uh, started in 2009. Lee got all uh, 207 of theirs in just a few years, and Drake has now gotten to 203 in just over 10 years. Digital era, so totally different than you ever could have done that before. Uh, the other thing, too, kind of interesting that Drake would do this. I know it's it's completely easy. You really don't have to do anything. These songs are out there, but in some ways kind of goes against the grain of current 
uh, release models because if songs are out on YouTube and SoundCloud, wherever, you, you almost don't really need one compilation anymore. Like you see fewer greatest hits packages now, but yeah, a souvenir, I guess. Yeah, but I guess it's probably nice to like at least even, just even have it all on a like in a place. It's a very fan servicey kind of thing because yeah. I mean, you know, of course, you know, there could be different qualities and different, you know mixes and everything and i know if it's only on youtube or soundcloud you kind of got to switch apps to play it or you maybe forget about it or whatnot i mean it's a very sort of like fans first kind of kind of move and i i mean obviously not too many people have this kind of catalog of you know just sort of these random collections out there that they can really put together like that but it's one of those things that you know i mean between putting out the the the, the so far gone mixtape for its 10th anniversary, which he did earlier in February, got a top 10 album off of that, then turn around and do this kind of thing. I mean, to, you know, get two top 10 albums without having to record a single track in a year. I mean, that is just, that that's just, you know, how you sort of keep evolving and keep the game on its toes. And yeah, I think it's just, I mean, really just a smart, you know, smart move because who would have thought to do that? Nobody, you know, it would have just been one of those things that lived out there in different platforms, but he saw an opportunity, he took it and gets rewarded for it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, so let's go back to 1994. That's what we're going to do for uh, the rest of the podcast. We've done uh, a lot of these countdowns before. We look back at old Hot 100s, count our way down, uh, flashing back and talking to artists who were big on the charts back then. So yeah, let's go back 25 years, 1994, count on the top 25 uh, on the Hot 100. Real quick, uh, Trevor, 1994, memories for you? Do you have any memories of 1994? Um, we're kind of at that point where if I do have memories, they don't have timestamps attached to them. So it's like, maybe I can probably remember some things that happened when I was a kid, but I don't know if it was, you know, 94 or 95 or so. pre-K That's still? about nursery school? No, Pre-nursery school? I don't know. Just, 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 just chilling at home every day. Um, the good old days. Yeah, just yeah. This is yeah before kindergarten, before any of that. Just, just a toddler, just trying to you know, trying to figure out my place in this big bad world. I was working in a radio at the time, interning in the programming department at Mix in Boston. Uh, really, really fun. It was the first time I could really see how uh, radio uh, playlists and and just everything worked uh, from the inside. So I've I really good memories. I was working the research department at the time too. A whole bunch of us were. Uh, became really good friends. We still are today. So uh, yeah, even if you don't have any memories, it's a good uh, summer uh, for me. So going back, uh, yeah, 25 years. Let's count down the top 25. Uh, different sounds. There's a lot of pop. There's a lot of a uh, lot of R and B. A lot of smooth 90s R and B. You'll hear some of this kind of has a, a similar thread throughout, mm-hmm. and some of it because uh, some of the same people were working on different songs. 
a lot of pop as well. So uh, yeah, we'll make our way up to the number one song this week, 25 years ago, and chat with Lisa Loeb about her breakthrough hit, Stay I Missed You, coming up here on the Billboard Sharpie Podcast. Let's kick things off with numbers 25 through number 21, this week, 25 years ago. Started with Melissa Etheridge back at number 25 with Come to My Window. It was her big breakthrough song. She'd had a couple Hot 100 hits back in 1989. They both uh, just uh, squeaked onto the chart in the 90s. Big rock hits, but uh, hadn't had any kind of a big commercial breakthrough until this song, Come to My Window. Uh, then whole run of hits after that. I'm the only one. Uh, hit the top 10. She had five straight top 40 hits through the mid-90s. And kind of just became the big name uh, that she's been since the Little Fair era uh, kicked in. We'll talk more about that coming up. But uh, yeah, big sound in the 90s was uh, female singer-songwriters, a lot of singer-songwriters overall. But uh, she was at the forefront of that. And this is the song that got her into it, Come to My Window. All right, so numbers 24 and 23. Okay. we got to mention who it is. It's R. Kelly with uh, Your Body's Calling at number 24. And Stroke You Up by Changing Faces at number 23. He wrote and produced both of them. And musically, that was his big breakthrough year. Bump and Grind, number one for four weeks. And Your Body's Calling was his second biggest hit at the time. Got to number 13. And already working with other acts at this point. Uh, Musically, big imprint on this this time of music in the mid-90s. Ooh, that 12-play album. Something else. Yeah, I mean, obviously one of those things where, you know, you, you, you can't separate... You know, you can't sort of separate the time now from from what we know now. But 
I mean, of course, I don't think anybody can sort of argue with R. Kelly's musical importance, especially like you're saying in this era where, you know, I mean, we'll see some other artists coming up that he had a a, a big hand in, in influencing and shaping as well. Um, so, you know, you, you hate you hate to see it, really. I mean, I know it sounds kind of maybe an easy dismissal, but, uh, you know, for someone who has such a rich musical legacy and importance as R. Kelly, you hate to see that, you know, I mean, how he chose to ruin that. So, so, uh, so completely, but he made his choice and, you know, it's all you can say, I guess. All right. Uh, number 22, Erasure with always one of my favorite acts of the pop alternative from, from late 80s into the 90s and, and since. So uh, they broke through with with uh, some great songs, Old No More uh, in the late 80s, finally uh, the top 15 on the Hot 100 with Chains of Love and Little Respect. Uh, it's always kind of a nice surprise to me that a few years later, after uh, hip hop had become so much bigger and uh, grunge had kind of taken over what alternative was, you didn't hear these kinds of eh, more happy, poppy alternative songs becoming such big hits. It just the sound changed. Uh, this became a top 20 hit for Erasure. And uh, yeah, great song. Uh, they've continued to put out albums uh, since. So uh, yeah, it was always a nice, uh, nice surprise that that song got as high as it did back in the mid 90s. Number 21, Prayer for the Dying for Seal. Uh, he was on his way up in 1994. Uh, broke through in 1991 with Top 10 Crazy. And then this song uh, came out, was at its number 21 peak uh, 25 years ago this week. Yeah, pretty deep song, uh, lyrically, musically, some real sophisticated sounds, which is what Seal does. And then a year later, Kiss from Rose would become uh, his absolute biggest hit, seven weeks at number one in 1995. But he was, he was kind of a core artist, uh, early to mid-90s, and this one of his big hits. All right, so that's five down. Let's uh, keep things going. Here's the next set of five tracks in the upper region of the Hot 100 this week, back in 1994, numbers 20 through 16. Number 20, we heard the song Always In My Heart by Tevin Campbell. It's actually the third top 20 hit from his second album, 
uh, after probably his best-known track and the one that's aged the best, Can We Talk, and the title track to the album, I'm Ready. Both of those number nine hits on the Hot 100. And I think one thing that even if you know Tevin Campbell, some people may forget that Always in My Heart was his 10th Hot 100 hit in his career, and he was only 18 at the time. So He started really, really. Yeah, yeah. really one of those sort of child prodigy. And this is kind of pretty common in R&B in this particular moment. Usher started out when he was uh, very much around the same age in his early teens. Uh, Monica, who actually was one spot short of setting a new record for the youngest female artist to hit number one on Hot 100. She would have beaten she would have beaten little Peggy Marsh if she had gotten to number one with yeah. uh, don't take it personal so there's a lot of a lot of you know very young um, teenage r and b singers in this moment really breaking out and Tevin is one of them first got his breakthrough work with Quincy Jones on the back on the block album on a song called tomorrow that album actually won the Grammy for album of the year so that really is kind of what gave him a big star and, and moved him forward but uh, even if you don't know Tevin Campbell from his his hits you know they Unlike an Usher or Monica, it was really contained to that early, mid-90s period. Um, but if you're a kid, you don't know Can We Talk, that's probably the best-known track. You certainly will know Tevin Campbell uh, from this. If we listen to each other's heart, oh, yeah. never too far apart. And maybe love is a reason why That's right. He is... The voice of Powerline from a goofy movie. So the song Eye to Eye, that song, that that, that that's is, what you think of when you think of Tevin Kent. I think a lot of people, you know, if you don't know his hits, I think I think that definitely Gary doesn't understand what an impact that made on 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 this new millennial generation. Uh, so that character kind of modeled after Michael Jackson is, you know, the the ultimate pop star. Apparently, reports are that Bobby Brown was supposed to do it first. That's what they had in mind, but. Didn't work out for whatever reason, so mm-hmm. I went to Tevin Campbell instead. And uh, I will say they had a reunion a few weeks ago. They had a little reunion a few years ago for a goofy movie. Tevin Campbell showed up, saying can still hit all those high notes just the same. All right, just above Tevin, uh, right there at number 19, we heard Aerosmith. The song was crazy. So at this point, Aerosmith, just over two decades of Hot 100 prowess. They actually first made the chart back in 1973 with Dream On, uh, which... In its first iteration, not that big a hit. Didn't get to the top 50, but re-released in 1976, and that kind of kick-started them on their way. Probably, if you know Crazy, um, it's a song that peaked at number 17, so their 11th top 20 hit, but you probably know it better for the music video that featured Alicia Silverstone, who actually was in her third Aerosmith video, so the two of them had become a little tandem right then. And also uh, is the video debut for a woman named Liv Tyler, who, if you don't know, just happens to be well, Arwen and Lord of the Rings. Yes, uh, some oh, apparently, apparently, the music video's director uh, found her and didn't actually know that she was indeed Steven Tyler's daughter, Steven, lead singer of Aerosmith. Um, so, kind of one of those weird things where you know she would be doing commercials and on her own way, and as fate would have it, you yeah. know, she kind of linked up in that way. Um, but the two of them kind of do a. Sort of a Thelma and Louise kind of hooky, uh, high school hooky kind of video. So it's a lot of fun. Probably was a big MTV hit back in back in the, back in the day. Um, yeah. But definitely, you know, I mean, extended Aerosmith twenty years in the making. I mean, not many rock bands, of course. Kind of to your point, like could survive in so many different eras, and especially in the '90s, as R and B and hip hop and a lot of urban sounds really become the mainstream. And for a, a vintage band like Aerosmith to still be cranking out top twenty hits in the mid '90s, that's a major feat. 
All right, speaking of uh, kind of reinventions, right there at number 18, we heard I'll Remember by Madonna, which, you know, if, if there's any artist that's synonymous with reinventions, it is Madonna. And this was this was kind of uh, maybe not one of her major transformations, but probably, you know, an important one just because she had been out a few years before with the album Erotica, with Sex. So, you know, really kind of jumping into to a very controversial image that that was successful, but at least with critics, wasn't wasn't entirely beloved. And maybe she had risked going a little too far trying to push this in people's faces. I mean, the book Sex had been out as well. And erotica i mean even just the titles of those works kind of showing that you know she's she's she, madonna bears all you know but uh so i'll remember kind of a, a return to form a ballad a strategic choice that uh whose co-writers include patrick leonard who worked with a lot of her on her big 80s hits including like a prayer who's that girl live to tell so very uh familiar safe face in the madonna camp the song was very successful on the hot 100 number two hit uh, her best since This Used to Be My Playground back in 1992. Uh, one of Madonna's record 38 top 10s, which we must ask, how much longer can we say that uh, with Drake? Rihanna also in the 30s club. What about Rihanna? Could Rihanna have 32 top 10s coming soon? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, Drake and Rihanna very much, very much closing in on that gap. So um, we will we will acknowledge Madonna's record 38 top 10s. Every time we can. Yeah, I'll remember. Really one of her – I feel like it's a little little hidden in her catalog, but but yeah. a really great song. I always really like that song. Yeah, I mean the song wasn't on any of her albums. It was on sort of only on a greatest hits ballads collection in the mid-90s, so not something that's really going to be tied to one of her big studio albums. Uh, but also was on the soundtrack for the film With Honors, which is what it was really created for. Song definitely is aged better than the movie. Movie starring Brendan Fraser, Joe Pesci, among others. Eh, you know, kind of a cult classic in, in some ways, but, you know, was not doing gangbuster numbers at the box office. So um, Madonna definitely, definitely taking the, the W on that one. All right, uh, moving up spots number 17, we got this DJ, Warren G. This is his second top 10 hit to kick off his Hot 100 career as an artist after Regulate, uh, which was earlier hit in 1994. We're actually going to hear regulate a little bit later so if you're a fan of that one stay tuned and warren g i mean really one of the 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 key hallmark artists of the g-funk era which incorporates so much of that old r&b sound into the west coast hip-hop of the early 1990s um maybe you know him as part of 213 as well with with nate dog and snoop dog we'll also hear from nate dog coming up on regulate but um we'll, we'll talk a little bit about warren g going forward a little later but obviously two top 20 hits at once so definitely part of that west coast crew that's really pushing rap really into the mainstream especially in sort of a counterbalance much more melodic groovy way than maybe some of the gangster rap that people have been fearing and wondering was going to take over in the late 1980s yeah warren g the only artist with two songs in the top 25 this week warren warren g killing it yeah all right august 94 good month to be warren g all right, and uh, wrapping things up here at number 16, we got You Mean the World to Me by Tony Braxton. And this track is the third straight top 10 out of her debut album, also called Tony Braxton. Uh, the songs Another Sad Love Song and Breathe Again, both top 10 hits before this. Really good year for Tony Braxton. I mean, the album had come out in 1993, but 94, so she starts reaping a lot of these rewards. We're still on this hot streak of top 10 hits, and she had won the Best New Artist Grammy that february so you know even even if she kind of 
closing the album cycle here and getting ready for number number two in 1996. And that album is going to be, you know, a, another major one with You're Making Me High and Unbreak My Heart, both going to number one. But Tony, really one of the uh, the new standout artists of R&B in the early 1990s, works with L.A. Reid, Babyface, Proven Hitmakers with so many. And she just joins that cra- crop and just like Whitney and Mariah, I mean, racking up so many big hits uh, so quickly. So really, I mean, for a lot of these solo female R&B singers, the early 90s was, I mean, that was a chart play day for him. And Tony Braxton is right there. Let's move on to the top 15, numbers 15 through 11 this week on the Billboard Hot 100, August 1994. Five hits this week, 25 years ago, 1994, on the Billboard Hot 100, numbers 15 through number 11. Back at number 15, Mariah Carey. The, not going to focus on the fact that it was her first song to miss the top 10 after 11 in a row, including eight number ones. And the song got up to number 12. It, part of it, it was, it was a fourth single for Music Box. And back then, the Hot 100 was airplay and sales, so it was still a top 10 airplay hit. But uh, if you bought the album back then, uh, if it had been out that long, been out for months, at that point, you kind of didn't have the same new buzz uh, when a fourth single came along. So it didn't quite have the sales uh, to get to the top 10. I feel like some people, maybe in like the lamb circles or, or you know, pop critics think maybe it was a little too gospel maybe a little too... It was a little little different, maybe a little less fully commercial than some of her other stuff. But, you know, at the same time showed her depth as an artist. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I get, you know, from an artistic point, I'm saying from the commercial side, some people think that that might have been, you know, it didn't have the the... Yeah, the, that that pure right. all people pop appeal. Uh, but yeah, still twenty seven top ten. She's up to now. Uh, we're still still waiting for all I want for Christmas is you. Could this be the year that it hits number one? 
Or is Old Town Road going to be in its 39th week at number one? Well, uh, speaking of Old Town Road, we got to mention One Sweet Day. Mariah still has the record for most weeks at number one for a song by a female artist, 16. He couldn't break that. Don't, don't attempt to. Uh, uh, number 14 for Aaron Hall, I Miss You. Yeah, a couple top 40 hits in the 90s. This was his biggest, uh, even bigger at R&B Radio. It was a number one song for six weeks on the R&B Hip Hop Airplay chart. Uh, number 13, On Its Way Up to Number 4. It's actually the biggest hit for Babyface as an artist uh, among five top tens. A uh, little, you know, slightly different sound from acoustic-based song, When Can I See You? Uh, but obviously his legacy goes so much deeper than, than really his solo uh, recording career. Uh, 11-time Grammy Award winner. Uh, hit the top ten back in 1988 as part of the deal on two occasions. Uh, was looking at everything he's written or produced, part of... Over 40 top 10s on the Hot 100. Huge number ones, End of the Road. I'll Make Love to You for Boys to Men. Take a Bow for Madonna. Uh, Whitney, Exhale. Tony Braxton, You're Making Me High, Let It Flow. And then uh, Mariah, We Belong Together, which uh, calls back to occasions uh, by the deal. Uh, also, Tevin Campbell, you were mentioning, Trevor, Always in My Heart at number 20. He was a part of that song, too. So, yeah, you can't talk about this 90s sound uh, without... Babyface since since the eighties. He's he just really overall. He's just one of the most influential producers, writers, really of the entire rock era. Yeah, I mean it's kind of wild just what Babyface. I mean, especially you know with and without Ellie Reed. And, and during this week in the mid nineties, perhaps probably to me one of the biggest testaments to how respected he is and how adored and, and obviously the massive massive number of hits he gets. Four consecutive producer of the year Grammy awards. And I mean, I think just for a body, you know, who, you know, when people can vote, sometimes I think people have this, you know, they, they, once you win a couple, people are kind of like, okay, you've had your turn, you know, and somebody else, but he was so undeniable. I mean, to win it four years in a row in the height of the mid nineties. And you've got, I mean, so many, you know, legendary producers out there at every point, you know, David Foster or Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis or whoever and Babyface, just to get that respect and tower over all of them. That just goes to show who, who and what he is. Moving up to number 12, John Cicada, If You Go, uh, started with Gloria Stefan in uh, co-wrote her 1991 number one, Coming Out of the Dark, and then had his own breakthrough as an artist in uh, 1992 with Just Another Day. I love this song. Became a second top 10 in 1994. Uh, working in the programming department, John Cicada came in uh, while I was interning. Really nice guy. It was a huge deal. He was just so big at the time. It was really nice to everybody. Uh, I talked to him a few years ago. Uh, he's uh, continued to record. Really nice. So, yeah, John Cicada had a nice run of hits in the early early to mid-90s. If you go at number 12. And number 11, guitars, rock on the charts in the 90s. We heard Melissa Etheridge back at number 25. Alternative was obviously huge at this point. Some of the biggest hits crossed over, and this was one of them. Uh, for Collective Soul, their breakthrough hit at its number 11 peak. Uh, all these years later, they're actually back on our mainstream rock songs chart right now uh, with the song Right as Rain. It's their first entry since 2005. So 14 years they've been away and they're back on the chart. It's their 20th hit overall. They've had seven number ones and that all started with Shine back in 1994. So uh, taking us up to the top 10, here's numbers 10 through 6 this week, 25 years ago. Let me see you go back. Let me see you come in. Now let me see you go back. Let me see you go back. Let me see you come in. Yeah. It's Friday and I'm ready to sing. Pick up my girls and hit the party 
sing my homie Nate. Sixteen in the clip and one in the hole. Nate Dog is about to make somebody's turn cold. Now they dropping and yelling, it's a tad bit late. Nate Dog and Warren G had to regulate. We are in the home stretch now. Just 10 songs left to go, counting down the top 25 hits from this week back in 1994 on the Hot 100. At number 10, you guys heard the song Back and Forth by Aaliyah. And uh, kind of like Gary mentioned when we talked about R. Kelly at number 24 with the song Your Body's Calling, even though R. Kelly may not be a performer on uh, some of these tracks, obviously very much involved behind the scenes as a writer and or producer on some of those. And Aaliyah certainly here is uh, probably one of his biggest, best-known protégés of the time uh, with her breakthrough coming out in 1994 and the album Age Ain't Nothing But a Number that he uh, really helped produce and write so much of the tracks for. Uh, Aaliyah at the time, also like we mentioned with Tevin Campbell, you know, um, Aaliyah, one of the young upstarts of R&B at this time. She's only 14 when the album comes out. So in that same vein, one of those new teenagers really making inroads on the R&B scene. Her first uh, Hot 100 hit, it goes all the way to number five and the first of 15 uh, career entries that she's going to have. Of course, we know the Aaliyah story ends very prematurely, unfortunately, in 2001 when she dies in a plane crash um, after filming a music video, trying to come back from the Bahamas. So, you know, even in that short span, though, of only about seven or eight years of really an active recording career. Um, still able to rack up 15 Hot 100 hits, five top tens. And really, you know, part of that, maybe because of some chart rules at the time, some of her biggest hits, actually major hits on R&B radio, but because they weren't commercial singles, weren't eligible for the Hot 100. So even some of those songs like One in a Million or Four Page Letter uh, weren't Hot 100 hits, but still massive hits on R&B radio and still some of her best known and uh, best loved songs to date. And above that, number nine, we have the song Regulate by Warren G. Nate Dogg. Really one of the standout tracks of this whole G-Funk era. If you're a fan of 90s West Coast uh, hip-hop in particular, this is one of those songs that, you know, is just definitely, definitely on the map and definitely a classic for you. Track uh, number two hit for Warren G. And so almost, uh, you always feel bad for a number two hit because, you know, obviously it's like it's just, it's, it's so many great artists who deserve number one hits. Uh, unfortunately, just fell one place short. Regulate, unfortunately, no exception there. But really one of the, like I said, key hallmarks of the G-Funk era. It was also on the soundtrack to the film Above the Rim, which uh, featured, among others, Tupac Shakur, so keeping it sort of in the West Coast death row family there. 
So regulate the first of Warren G's two top ten hits. Uh, this DJ, which we heard back at number 17, also a top ten hit that got to number nine. So a uh, good year for Warren G. His breakout year with, with his debut album as well. So um, really just like Snoop, just like Dre, putting in a lot, lot of money into the coffers of Death Row Records. And also uh, a mention for the chart fans out there who hear the name Nate Dogg. If you don't know him from this era, you probably know him from his featured appearance on a number one hit by 50 Cent, 21 Questions, in 2003. So um, although Warren G did not get to number one in his Hot 100 career, Nate Dogg almost took him about 10 years, but Nate Dogg eventually gets there. And look at that, with help from 50 Cent, an East Coast rapper. So maybe that's maybe something symbolic about the you know the East Coast, West Coast coming together for uh, for that. All right, number eight, just above that, we've got Anytime, Anyplace, and On and On by Janet Jackson. Double-sided single there. And Janet Jackson really just in the middle of one of these major runs in pop music history. Um, Really an all-time great run. 1993, the album Janet comes out. It's got number one hits with That's the Way Love Goes and Again and Top Fives. And If, Because of Love, Anytime, Anyplace, and after this, we'll have another top 10 with You Want This. So six top 10s off one album. It's actually her third straight album to do at least six top 10s. She uh, still has the record for most top fives from one album with Rhythm Nation, 1814. So you put this stretch together. I mean, Janet Jackson is just, I mean, all at will. Kind of like Drake today, I guess you could say. Just spitting out top 10s left, right, and center. Anytime, anyplace making significant history on the hot R&B hip hop songs chart actually spins in 11 weeks at number one, which is at the time a chart record. Yeah. Uh, if we pay attention at the top of class on the podcast this week, we'll learn, we learned that Lil Nas X broke the record this week. So a little connection between the hot R&B hip hop songs charts, number one record, fun fact trivia for everybody there. Um, but yeah, I mean, Janet Jackson just, you know, and one of these ballad, more of a ballad, quiet storm kind of song, Probably a little little atypical in her catalog at this point, but still, I mean, my opinion, one of probably the best song on that album, Total Smash. And just goes to show, Janet Jackson is in, really in her element in this moment, unstoppable. Yeah, a little more, I guess, adult subject matter than something like Come Back to Me. Yeah, this Getting is not Let's Wait yeah. a While. Yeah. This is, I mean, you can guess what she wants to do anytime and any place. You and she doesn't, and as the lyrics say, she doesn't care who's around. So, uh, we'll let the kids put that one together for themselves. And in the meantime, we'll move on to number seven the song Don't Turn Around, as done by Ace of Bass. I say as done by Ace of Bass because origin of the song may be a little um, unfamiliar to most people and probably wouldn't suspect this that before the song was a hit in the mid 90s, actually was first written uh, and recorded in the mid 1980s. Diane Warren, originally one of the co-writers on this song, and it was originally written for Tina Turner, who actually recorded it as a B-side to her single Typical Male. The, the Luther Ingram version in the late 80s and Aswan version. Yeah, that was a big, it was a reggae version hit in the UK, but you're, you're missing my favorite version. 
Not the Ace of Base version. No. You'll know this voice. Don't turn around, cause you wanna see my heart breaking. Don't turn around, I don't want you seeing me cry. Neil Diamond's version. It's an hit. Neil before. Neil Diamond. Yeah. I should have known that was coming up, but... As far as the Hot 100 and the pop charts are concerned, Ace of Bass is the standard there. So this song, the third top ten for them um, in their really breakout year after All That She Wants. And, of course, the infamous The Sign, Swedish hits. I mean, it's the Swedes. They know how to make a great pop song. So, yeah, Ace of Bass um, up there as well. Really the last, maybe one of the last big hallmarks of their of their career. Uh, they only have one top ten after this, which is a cover of Cruel Summer in 1998 but um by the end of the 90s kind of when the teen pop explosion comes through ace of bass uh, effectively done there but obviously i mean three top tens to start off their career that huge number one in the sign can't be mad at that closing things out here before we get to the top five number six we got functified by debrat which is a song that was a number one hit on the hot rap songs chart so go show that she's one of the uh really first and and you know in a lot of people's opinion, in mine too, probably criminally short list of huge female rappers who were able to make such consistent breakthroughs and and big breakthroughs on the rap so- on the rap songs chart, particularly in the '90s before you know before Eve and Missy and, and Nicki and Cardi and a lot of them have come along since. But Funkified, uh, obviously a top ten hit on the Hot 100. She'll get back to number six later in her career, helping out this killer lineup of Lil Kim. Left Eye, Lopez, Missy Elliott, and Angie Martinez on the song Not Tonight, which is a number six hit a few years later. Can you imagine getting sort of like the five pow- five powerhouse women of rap today to like do a track together? You know, like that would be sick. Like if, I don't know, if, if Nikki, Cardi, Megan Thee Stallion, like, uh, I don't know, Sweetie, like it's one of those things that, that when you, the more you look back in chart history, some of these collaborations that somehow came to be, you kind of miss that. You kind of kind of wish that, that, you know, between the egos, the social media feuding, the 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 all the contracts and the labels, and the problems that a lot more of these all star artists could come together and, and do some tracks like that. Uh, the brat, I mean, Funkified, really one of the high points in her career. She kind of kind of settles into this place where she come, becomes more known, probably for her features and guest appearances than her own solo material. But still, of course, a very very key part of hip hop history, and especially in the line of the the few female MCs who've been able to get through such highs definitely is worthy of a mention and a salute for that. We got five more to go. We are round and third. We are home is just, just inches away. Stay with us. Uh, here we go. We're going to count down from five until two right now. Oh, yeah. 
we on a mission. Two on the Billboard Hot 100 25 years ago this week, 1994, back at number five. Heard something recently, Trevor, about the Lion King. Feel like it's been in the news a little bit lately. Yeah, um, it sounds kind of familiar. Yeah, yeah. yeah the original 1994, uh, absolutely huge that year. Not really a comeback for Elton John because he'd had even a couple years earlier been to number one with George Michael on "Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me," also top ten with uh, "The One." But this just kind of felt like it was. And same that got to number four, not a number one hit, but just kind of felt because of the movie, just his biggest pop culture hit. And I don't even know how, how long this song just uh, probably uh, opened up a lot of, even though everyone, everyone knew Elton John, everyone knows Elton John, but uh, because of the tie into The Lion King, uh, maybe kids were finding out about him for the first time. And the song has just stood up as an absolute classic, obviously. Uh, all these new versions of it uh, this year. So the new one by Destiny's Childish Gambino. Okay. Uh, this year. Also, I, a new version by Pentatonix uh, is really good too, a cappella version. Kind of feels like the song is just ever present, especially lately with the new uh, Lion King, but top five hit 25 years ago this week for Elton John. Uh, up to number four for Wild Night with John Mellencamp and Michelle and Deggio Cello. Should I tell just the, the straight chart story or the story of what John Mellencamp is like to tour with? Oh, we got to get, we got to know it. JCM is like. I'm not going to say the artist I talked to, but I was interviewing an artist last year who had toured with John Mellencamp. And, and I said to them, oh, I did that, that must have been great. What was it like? And they said, we, we learned how not to treat people on tour with John Mellencamp. Guess he can be a little tough to work with. It's, it's high standards? I don't know. What's a diplomatic way of, of putting that? Yeah. Well, they said yeah, it's they le- at least they learned how not to treat people. So still, still a lesson to take there, out so of So there was sil- yeah. silver lining, right? You know. Uh, so uh, yeah, no, the song became a huge hit. Uh, remake of a Van Morrison song from 1971, originally got to number 28. Uh, this version came along, got all the way up to number three, became John Mellencamp's 10th and most recent top 10. Yeah, just uh, kind of, uh, he'd had such a great run of hits in the 80s and this Bit of a comeback for him in the mid-90s. Uh, number three for Coolio, Fantastic Voyage, his breakthrough hit at its peak. Number three, a year later, Gangsta's Paradise would come out. That would go all the way to number one. So uh, mid-90s, totally Coolio's time, peaking on the charts. But this one this one didn't get the Weird Al Yankovic treatment. Gangsta's Paradise did, but not, not Fantastic Voyage. Let's also not forget, um, if you were a kid, maybe not super... 
aware of Coolio in terms of his his mainstream presence. So Gangsta's Paradise, I'm sure a lot of kids knew that, but probably knew him from uh from this at least for sure. If you're watching uh Nickelodeon this time. Everybody out there, go burn and tell your homeboys and homegirls it's time for Keenan and Kel. Yes, that's the Keenan and Kel theme song that he did with Keenan Thompson, who is now on SNL. Um, but way back when, now that was at least probably my first introduction to Julio. Besides just knowing who the name and who he was, was um, given given us that nice theme song to Keenan and Kel. And also shout out to like TLC who did the all that theme song. So there were a lot of these big artists at the time who lent their voices to a lot of these kids' projects, even Destiny's Child, Solange, Proud Family theme coming up in a few years. So it's kind of a nice little consistent play that happens in a lot of these R&B and hip-hop circles. And see, we're getting some uh, mid-'90s memories out of you. It's all related to, to Disney or Nickelodeon. So it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that's – yeah, I was on, on par with my age group at the time for sure. I wasn't – yeah, I wasn't an exceptional – person yet that was the prodigy was coming a little bit later trust me yeah number two after an 11 week run at number one this week 25 years ago for all for one and i swear uh interesting deal with them back in in this time in the mid 90s 94 95 they had a basically a country music doppelganger in john michael montgomery so he took his version of i swear to number one on hot country songs for four weeks in february 1994 and then their version number one for 11 weeks on the hot 100 and then uh, they realized it worked. They were both on Atlantic Records, so it's kind of easy to coordinate. Uh, John Michael Montgomery put out in 1995, I Can Love You Like That, number one hit on the country chart for three weeks. And their version hit number five on the Hot 100. They made a duet version just a few years ago for the first time, uh, both artists. For better or worse, till death do us part, I'll love you with All for one, John Michael Montgomery. It's their song, so it makes sense for them to be on it together. So, uh, yeah, number two this week, 25 years ago, 1994. That brings us up to the number one song this week, August 13th, dated Hot 100, 1994. Became the first unsigned act ever to hit number one on the Hot 100 with her debut hit, Stay, I Missed You. Uh, Famously, we keep bringing up all these movies. Uh, This is a a great era for soundtrack hits uh, from Reality Bites and the film's uh, star Ethan Hawke directed the video where uh, Lisa Loeb does it all in one take and introduces uh, the famous glasses. Uh, so, uh, yeah, three weeks at number one. It was in its second week at number one this week, 25 years ago. And had a chance to chat with Lisa Loeb last Friday before a show uh, in Norwalk, Connecticut. Uh, really nice. We talk about Stay, talk about uh, having a smash hit even before her debut album was out. And if that added any pressure, uh, Lisa Loeb, part of the Little Fair era in the 90s. Uh, recently, uh, more recent year, she's gotten into recording and performing children's music. Uh, she has a new album coming out. So on the way at some point soon, uh, she performed a couple songs uh, from the new album uh, Friday night at the show. Sounded really good. A uh, song, I don't know if it was called Shine or Too Shine, but really, really nice. So looking forward to hearing that. Uh, Lisa Loeb, our special guest coming up here on the podcast right now. And we're going to close the version she did uh, at Billboard a couple years ago. So uh, so the video, the famous video, she uh, she's walking through different rooms, uh, does it all in one take. When she, she came to Billboard in 2013, uh, I was thinking, oh, maybe maybe we could have her redo it at Billboard. She just walked through the office. But like, eh, I don't want to ask her. She doesn't know how the office is set up. It could be awkward. And uh, we're, we're talking. And she said, hey, how about if I walked through the office and recorded it? 
So I was like, great, absolutely. So uh, we did a version. Uh, we're posting it with the podcast here on billboard.com. Uh, she remembered it. She, she had fun doing that. It's nice of her too to really embrace that and actually suggest it just because, you know, sometimes a lot of artists want to shy away from that one thing that, you know, probably is most remembered about them or that, you know, famous clip or whatever. They kind of want to leave that where it was and that was nice then and that was a good time, but they really want to focus on something now. So for her to, you know, not shy away from that or not be turned off by recreating, you know, this old video, I think is actually really cool and really a testament to her personality. And, you know, she knows that people are fans of that and enjoyed it. And, you know, why not give them uh, another way to appreciate it? Ethan Hawke and me, both directors of Stay. Equal footing, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you've, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, really uh, fun to chat with Lisa Loeb. She's our special guest wrapping things up here on the Billboard Charpy Podcast, flashing back to the number one song this week 25 years ago on the Billboard Hot 100, Stay I Missed You by Lisa Loeb. Hello, welcome to the Billboard Sharpie Podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to go way back to when uh, I first heard of you, and this was before Stay I Missed You. I don't know if you remember the show. I saw you at uh, Brown University in spring 1992, opening for Mary Chapin Carpenter at Brown. Do you remember that? Yeah, that's right. Um, I have boxes and boxes of all my old flyers and you know receipts from making records from when I was in college, and even before that, uh, all kinds of box. And it's funny, I found like... Boxes of my old Rolling Stone magazines and yeah. articles I cut it out, cut out from newspapers about bands that I liked and charts and things like that from the eighties. Um, and I'll have to look back; I might have some kind of record of that exactly. Yeah, it was a big arena. I think the show was yeah, supposed it was to in be the ice hockey yeah, arena. Right, the show was supposed yeah. to be outside, but it was raining, so it became uh, an inside show. I remember that. I re- definitely remember being there with Mary Chapin Carpenter. You know, I was still playing with my friend Liz. All right, so yeah, so this was a couple years before stage, so. When Stay came out and broke in such a big way, a couple of years later, everyone's talking about this brand new artist. And to me, it was, ah, I know about her. I, I've seen her. Do you remember, you just mentioning charts, when the song went to number one, when it was breaking on the charts, we always like to ask artists here at Billboard, do you remember finding out you were number one and just memories of being on the charts? Yeah, you know, it was funny. Although I wasn't signed to a label officially, um, at that point, I had gotten close to the radio promoters from RCA Records who had the record Reality Bites, that my song was a, a part of that that soundtrack and there's a guy named skip bishop who i was actually literally texting with yesterday who is the uh top 40 radio promoter person and he's still a good friend of mine and he was just it was kind of like the perfect person to have a song on the charts with because he was enthusiastic very businesslike but very excited about it and and he would call every week and tell us as the song was going up the charts he'd call and he'd say lisa here's the deal and he would you know it's like we knew the night before I forgot what the exact timing was but we always knew before it was actually out and each week we would hear hear about it climbing up the charts so although it was really exciting each week it was like watching a horse race or something um, you know hearing that it was number one was was really great and also because there were people involved like my co-producer Juan Patino who I was dating at the time and we were making lots of music and uh, my family and all my friends and Skip Bishop and there were so many people we were working with in my band, Nine Stories. Um, it was kind of 
it was so much fun to experience because although I was continuing to plow on with making a new record and uh, I, I actually signed with a record label when my song was number one. So there were all these like visits to Los Angeles and lots of meetings and concerts and promotions for the song. Um, it was fun to keep to keep this enthusiasm about this sort of reward at the end of, you know, this sort of rainbow, into the rainbow, number one single, to have so much excitement about that, to be able to share that with other people. It really kept the focus on, on what a cool experience that was at the time. Was it overwhelming at all in the sense that it was not an accidental number one because it's a great song, but uh, any way it sort of surprised you that you weren't maybe expecting that to happen before you were even signed? And did that add any extra pressure? It was extraordinary. It was out of the ordinary. But it would definitely felt like I like you saw me play a couple years before that. Well, I had been playing for so many years. I had made records. I had had the thrill of playing songs for people in a act. You know, I took acting class in England when I was in high school, and I played music for people from the East Coast, which was a little different from my uh, Texas friends. And they were just really drawn in by my music, and they wanted me to give them cassette tapes with my songs. So I'd experienced on so many different levels this. Um, the sparks that fly when you play a song and people hear you for the first time and they really want to hear the songs more and more. And I played a lot of live shows and this continued on all through college. So you're talking about six, seven, eight years later. And I had already been playing music for a few years in high school as well. So, and I, I, I'm an actor and I, you know, when you get a part in a play, it felt like that. It felt right. like all those special moments when you're working towards something and you get recognized for something and you fit into this space. Now, with a song on the radio, it is a little bit like the lottery as well. There's so many people out there trying to play the lottery and win. And it's, in retrospect, it's much more, even much more unique than it felt like it was at the time. It felt really special, but it's very unusual. And um, there's a lot of people and money and time that goes into getting a number one single. So... All of that, in retrospect, is much more of a shock. At the time, it felt like I was really putting one foot in front of the other and building up my following and my fan base as a solo artist and with my band. And, um, you know, definitely there were a couple of large jumps and leaps that happened, and it would be it was evident to me when, you know, uh, I was on certain TV shows like David Letterman or Saturday Night Live, things that were iconic for me, or on you know, in a ma certain magazines or, you know, playing radio concerts with people who I consider to be kind of pop stars right. like Mariah Carey and Aerosmith, um, people who, y you know, it's funny because because your s songs are in such different genres. And, and at the time when I was making my music, uh, I was a girl with a guitar, young woman with a guitar, playing music that um, had a lot of lyrics and varying degrees of complexity of music. I had a band. It was really important that I wasn't seen as a folk artist um, because that didn't seem like my style. I felt my I, I came from more of a lineage of Led Zeppelin and The Police and uh, maybe Ricky Lee Jones, but people who are musicians, not folk artists yeah. per se. I mean, I didn't even really listen to a lot of like James Taylor growing up. It was more about Olivia Newton-John and ELO and less about folk artists. So I really wanted to keep that lineage strong. But anyway, there were so many different genres and... All of a sudden, when you're on the charts, all these genres get matched together. So you're, you're sort of peers, musical peers, all of a sudden with somebody who really is an R&B pop singer or somebody who really is a, like a rock pop, you know, like a Bon Jovi. All these different genres all come meshing together. And so it was unusual to be someone who plays at CBGB's and also mostly CB's Gallery, where the more acoustic singer-songwriters played with their bands. Um, and then all of a sudden to be in the same room with people who really play in arenas all the time. So little by little, that also started to evolve. You know, we had Sean Colvin and Duncan Sheik and 
Paula Cole and then all the different singer-songwriters. But I think that was also what felt really unusual. Yeah. It felt natural in some ways, but it felt really unusual to be in the room all of a sudden with people who you don't consider to be your musical peers. But because your popularity is similar at that moment, you're in the same room. Yeah, you had a song a few years ago called The 90s. I did, yeah. Which kind of, uh, it addresses that, and I guess it's not not 100% everything was great. You're kind of saying, I was, one of the lyrics, uh, they looked at me as a folk singer, but I like Bowie. Exactly, yeah. I, it was funny, my friend Chad Gilbert, who I made my album No Fairy Tale with, he said, hey, he's, he's a guy who's in a band called Newfound Glory, and he's like really the engine behind that band. He's always got so many ideas, but he wanted me to make a poppy, punky rock record with him, and that was such a great idea because the influence he was talking about, like Tegan and Sarah, it was a similar influence that I have in my own music. That's what I listened to, or at least at the time I was listening to that to be inspired. He actually brought them in to be on the record, but he was the one who said, hey, it'd be really cool if you wrote a song about the 90s, and he's about a generation younger, you know, like 10, 10, 15 years younger than I am, and so it meant something different to him, and he had covered my song, Stay, um, so he was like, yeah, what are the 90s like? And to me, it seemed, you know, it's like when you're, when you, as you get older, the past doesn't seem so far away. So it didn't seem that far away to me. And then I started realizing he really wanted me to write about my experience in the 90s with my song Stay. And I said, I, so I wrote a song that I'm not against the 90s. I am very nostalgic, as you could tell earlier. <laughs> I have collections of all my stuff, and I, I'm a huge fan of music from all the different generations and I love thinking about where I was at the time and what was happening and also I still listen to some of the music I listened to a lot of it growing up and I have my own immediate feelings about it as well but I understood it was like a song about the 90s so I wanted to bring out what it was like to make my video for the song stay I I talk about my platform shoes and my dress I say Betsy cut my dress a little shorter Betsy Johnson made my dress she hemmed it for me in person very very short for me we were wearing dresses that were like the length of a of a shirt, which is very cute, um, and John Fluvog shoes, and I talk a lot about my clothes because also we were being judged for our clothes, and like I remember somebody in Interview Magazine called me a waif, and that stuck a long time, and it was kind of demeaning the way they said that. I'm a small person, and for a lot of people, that's like a goal to be a small person, you know, to be healthy, you know what I mean? Right. Um, but it was this demeaning thing. It was kind of a put down. I thought it wasn't. It, it took away the seriousness to me of being a musician. So I was kind of having a little bit of commentary on that. Um, and in the middle of the song, I also talk about people in the music business looking around the room at other people to get, you know, to try to figure out what they think before, you know, they have to hear somebody else say what they think before somebody will voice their own opinion and how annoying that was. Um, but they still send me a limousine. You know, that kind of mixed messages they give you, like people putting you down, treating you well, sending you limousines, everything's fabulous. You know, people don't understand me, that, which is also very 90s sentiment, like, oh, I'm misunderstood, you know. Even at the end of the song, you hear a tambourine drop, and that was very 90s to have <laughs> the overlap of the electric guitar distortion and then the tambourine right. drop at the end. But, um, you know, I said, I, I, what do I say? Those were the 90s. Is it you love me then, but I don't want to go back. I mean, I, right. I don't want to literally go back. I love playing the music from then, and I love talking about it and everything, but, you know, I love moving forward as well. So it, it was fun to to look at that in a psychological and historic way for Chad to make that song in the 90s. 
uh, I guess that kind of segues into the Lilith Fair era. Was that mostly positive in the sense that you're dealing with other female artists who uh, suddenly have a bigger voice being all together? And do you feel that uh, the whole uh, mission behind that was ultimately successful? Do women, do you think, get treated uh, differently now opportunity-wise when it comes to touring or the business overall? Uh, that's a really big question. You know, when I was f- first offered the Lilith Fair by Sarah McLaughlin, um, it was the year before it was officially started. She was sort of trying out some concerts. And at first, my first reaction was, I don't I don't really want to be on a, f- a festival with a bunch of women. Like, I love women. I'm, I went to all-girls school, and I have lots of girlfriends. But I don't want to be categorized as a woman musician. Right. We were having enough trouble at the time getting on the radio. We would hear, oh, we already have Cheryl Crow. We can't have you. Like, it literally was like, oh, we can have one woman on the radio, which is crazy. But then when I heard who was going to be on the bill, it was Sarah McLaughlin, it was um, Amy Mann, I think, and Patti Smith, I think. It was like a number of artists that I was a huge fan of, and I thought, I want to be in a concert with these people, or maybe Paula Cole. I'm like, these are great people. I want to be on this on this show. And, you know, that's sort of what turned it for me. It wasn't about being a bunch of women in a concert. It was like, cool, I want to go in the next year, Emmylou Harris and uh, Sheryl Crow and... Michelle and Diego Cello and you know the list went on and on and on and and I know Sarah was doing her best to try to bring in as many different artists but when you're talking about women artists you're talking about tons and tons of musicians you're not it's not like you know again it proves that there are a lot more women musicians out there but what ended up being the benefit for me part of it was that those those musicians and Sarah McLaughlin being the face on the whole project it brought such a wonderful audience it was just an audience that really wanted to listen to music men and women boys and girls, everybody, you know, them and they and everybody wanted to hear music and they wanted to be there. And it was a, it wasn't a groovy hippie thing, but it was a peaceful music listening, engaged crowd, which is like the perfect thing that musicians want, especially when you're in those big festival situations. It can feel very disconnected sometimes when you're playing on those huge stages in front of a lot of people. But these were people who really wanted to listen. And then the bonus was I got to meet all these other great musicians and talk to their bands and talk to their tour managers and their lighting directors and their sound engineers in there you know it was a great community backstage it was like normally as a musician you're off doing your thing you know writing a song by yourself in a room or out on tour by yourself or with your band or maybe with one other band but you don't ever get to commune and discuss and talk and make music with other people so easily and readily and this created a great you know place for people to get together I had that in college there were a lot of other bands and we all hung out and talked about stuff and how do you make your flyers and what are you doing you know but this was a great way it was sort of this bonus that I didn't realize would happen Um, and in the end it was cool too because it didn't shove women further in the corner it really made everybody stand up and listen everybody feels this way One of the things uh, you, you mentioned a moment ago about uh, record labels and how there's the kind of games being played, you never know what people are thinking. Uh, is it true that your hit, I Do, was written as a little bit of a poke at record labels with the, uh, you don't hear it, but I do, you don't hear that single, but I do? Yeah, no, it was 100% a poke. I was so frustrated. It was like I was making my album, it was my second album, Firecracker, and on my first album, um, Tales, the song that went top 20, my song, Do You Sleep, was one I used to play in college. Like, I wrote it when I was, you know, a sophomore, junior in college. And, 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 and all of my albums, ever since I was a kid, you know, in high school, I would 
sort of put together 10, 12 songs and that was an album. And I kept doing that and if song was left off one album, maybe it would go on the next album. But so for Firecracker, I was so frustrated. I had a record that I thought sounded really great. And then literally I felt like I was in the middle of one of those VH1 behind the music where and then she didn't have a single because the record company decided, you know, like go write a single. And I was so annoyed. Um, and I and I sat down, I was in Santa Monica mixing the record with Bob Clear Mountain and I was staying at Lowe's Santa Monica Hotel, beautiful hotel. And I remember renting or borrowing the like one of the conference rooms and I sat on the floor with all my papers and my food and my coffee and I was just like Ugh. and I just played the simplest chord progression I could think of and I was, I was like what am I really feeling and I was like I'm really feeling this stuff about the record company it's like I'm so tired of this it's so annoying and that's basically the song I wrote it sounds like a love song which is always good <laughs> and then it became you know a hit as well and I was like Arr. you know it's very frustrating and it's funny I, I remember listening to um, Sarah Bareilles this song I'm not going to write you a love song and I, and I was listening to the lyrics thinking, I really love this. And I'm like, this sounds like it's about the record company. And then yeah. I went and looked it up, and it was the same thing. Right. Did the label ever know any issues with putting it out as the first single? I didn't tell the label. I thought that it was very, um, I thought it simplified the song by letting him know it was such a direct song about them. You know, I felt like it was more powerful as a love song. So I kind of kept it to myself for many, many, many years. And then I thought, well, that's kind of an interesting fact, factoid. <laughs> Why are there so many? Songs about rainbows and what's on the other side. Great albums through the 2000s as well, and in more recent years, you've done more children's focused music. You started the Camp Lisa Foundation. Um, I like to joke around and say I, did, I started writing music for kids before I even knew about kids. I didn't even really like kids. <laughs> but um, I was, I'm a really nostalgic person, like I said, and... Um, as you can see if you look at the stuff that I kept from when I was a kid. But, like, I have all my old Hello Kitty stuff and stuff from the 70s, old board games and, you know, Muppet stuffed animals. And I, I was a huge uh, entertainment... You know, I loved entertainment when I was a kid. The, the Carol Burnett Show and Donnie and Marie and Steve Martin and Fernwood Tonight and uh, shows, variety shows that had a lot of music, some kids' records like Free to Be You and Me and um, Really Rosie by Carol King. And those two records in particular were very family friendly. They were, if you didn't know, like when I, I remember, I remember being a kid and listening to them and feeling kind of cool, like, oh yeah, I'm listening to real music. And I didn't even really listen to Carole King, but for some reason I had this Carole King kids record and I just felt cool, like, yeah, this is kind of cool. Because it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't like it wasn't, something specifically for kids. It was an adult artist speaking to kids. Yeah, exactly. And it, and it was done with their real bands and it, and it was telling stories and I've really taken those as my inspiration so back in the day I, I loved doing things kind of in an independent way music business wise music distribution wise and so Barnes and Noble at the time came to me and said do you want to make a record for Barnes and Noble we'll put it at work we'll be the label it's going to be in our stores and do something different from your regular records and a lot of people make kids records and Christmas records there's certain things that we just like to do and it's not because everybody's copying everybody it's just we get stuck doing our own music all the time, and there's certain outlets that just are naturally really fun, like write a musical, right. do kids' music. So I always wanted to do a kids' record, more inspired by this, by my nostalgia than by kids. Um, when I started thinking about it a little bit, I realized my friend Liz Mitchell, who I was in a band with all through college, who you probably saw, um, Liz and Lisa, she had started becoming a real powerful kids' artist, and the records she made sounded like real people playing real instruments and that was the kind of records I wanted to, to write so I, I all of a sudden you know, get 
a light bulb went off and I thought, ooh, I should get her to produce the record. We haven't worked together in a long time and I really love what she does. So she produced the record and it was a duet record called Catch the Moon. From there, I really enjoyed the process and probably more than that even, I got such a positive response from people and family saying, well, what are you going to do next? So I started thinking about it and... Um, I realized summer camp meant a lot to me, and that was a big place that I played a lot of music. Not, it wasn't music camp, but I played a lot of music. I played guitar. I performed in front of people. I made up, you know, fake lyrics to classic songs and played silly songs and all the. And I thought this this also sort of bridges that gap between kids' music and grown-up music. If you've been to camp, you've been a 15-year-old or a 21-year-old or a 12-year-old standing on a bench in a cafeteria at a camp singing songs at the top of your lungs. And it's really ageless feeling. It sort of brings out the youth in you rather than being kiddie music. So um, I decided to make a summer camp songs record. And that led to making another like 10 records or so. I, I don't know how many records. Yeah, I was going to say it almost works both ways because I, uh, I like your kids songs too. That's If you like your voice and you like your writing, you're, you're going to like it pretty much no matter what. Making kids music has really broadened my horizons as far as seeing that there's so many other things to write about. I saw a little bit of that when I saw my friend Morgan... Um, he has a he has a character named Gustopher Yellowgold, and he's made lots of records. And you know, it's like it, it again. It crosses that place where you listen to the Beatles. You're like, how could they think of that? That's such a weird thing to write about. But that's what happens when you start writing kids' music. For me, I either write about things that are unusual that I wouldn't normally write about, um, or I write about messages and things that are important to me that I want to get across in some way, maybe through a story, hopefully not hitting people over the head, but things that I would like kids to listen to. And that's actually affected my new record that I'm working on right now that I, well, I finished, it's mastered and everything. But these are songs that you take with you throughout the day. And it's almost like my kids writing took me to different places that made more sense in my grown up music world, especially, you know, you hear a lot of artists when they, I am married and settled and all these things. And when you're not, a lot of those things fuel your writing. And so m the things that fuel my writing have changed a little bit, but it's, it's a bummer when you hear artists that don't feel like they're fueled by anything. And I realized the things that were fueling me and I wanted to put those into songs, but it was learned sort of through making kids music, actually being able to tell a story, sing a song that people can really understand and take in in that moment and take with them throughout the day. And it doesn't have to be the most complex thing or impressive thing. It just can say something simple. Is there an element that when you write these songs, you were sort of talking to yourself when you were younger? Um, I'm talking to myself when I was younger, but even talking to myself now. You know, I, I one of the cool things about being a musician is that I get to go on the road and and I talk to people sitting on airplanes and, you know, maybe specifically fans after concerts and things like that. But I, 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 I interact with tons and tons of people all the time for all different reasons. And now also as a mom, I do interact with a lot of other grown-ups and people. And I just realized there's certain things, you know, and, and I see it a lot on the internet too with Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. There's certain messages and stories and things that really stick with you when you read them. And I think um, it, it's like those little phrases, like somebody once had a needlepoint website or something on Instagram and it, and they do these kind of funny, snarky little uh, messages uh, embroidered and one of them wasn't snarky, but it was. It just said, um, you can do it, it's not that hard. And then that was X'd out. And then under it, it said, you can do hard things. And I was like, oh, I love that. Like, And that's, it's, I, I, don't, I don't think it's trite. Like, I think those kind of messages, they really stay with us. Sometimes it's embarrassing to put a post-it on your mirror in the morning. But if you ever do it, 
with a positive message or something you want to remind yourself of that is not a grocery list, it really can fuel you throughout the day. It really inspires you. And I was like, ah, you know, that's, that's what I want to write about. Those are the things. So it's, it's myself when I was younger. Oh, also what I was going to say when I talk to people, sometimes I might throw some information in or somebody might say something to me that, that to me or to them is no big deal. It's just something you learned. You were talking to somebody and you learned this thing about yourself or about looking at life in a certain way. It's no big deal. And to somebody else, it blows their mind. So, you know, to be able to look at those, those moments and issues and times and things you've been in that have blown other people's mind when you realize what the solution was, you know, simple stuff like you're in a situation that's really not comfortable in a relationship. At a certain point, you might just say, I'm out of here. <laughs> this, I'm done with this, you know, respectfully, but like that can blow someone's mind. They think that they're stuck in their lives forever. So those are the kind of things I was looking at. Cause those are the kind of things I want to, I want to start my day or to take with me and to empower me and to, you know, make life, you know, if somebody has answers, I want to hear those answers. Yeah. I feel like, uh, that's what being an artist probably is. You're, you're in your head maybe more than the typical person. Cause you're creating songs, you're creating art and you're, you're always having interviews. You're talking with people. It, it kind of feels like in some sense, artists sort of know that whole psychological side maybe better than, than most people. Yeah. I think it's good. Also, I need to maybe it's funny. I already finished my record, but I'm like, Oh, I gotta write some more songs. Maybe, you know, delve into some darker stuff also that don't, that there is no solution. It's just being in it, whatever it is, because sometimes I feel like when I see other people's art, music, dance, being there with them during that is something, I don't know what, but it, it's an experience. But, um, yeah, it's funny. I think artists definitely have, we, I don't know. We talk about a lot of junk. Right, Steph. Go on and feel what you feel today. Feel what you feel, 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 what you feel. You won a Grammy for the first time. Last year you posted a picture, video of you opening it in the mail. You seem pretty excited about that. Yeah, it was really cool. They give you a Grammy to hold for the pictures and on stage and backstage. And then you get one sent to you in the mail and it's this thing and it's pretty cool. It's, um, again, it comes back to friends and family, you know, um, my record, feel what you feel, which is one of the record, the record that I won the Grammy for. Um, it was a big collaborative effort. I, I worked with a lot of great songwriters. Um, I worked with a producer who I've worked with a lot, uh, to do music for TV and kids animation, as well as making a ton of different records and specific projects. Um, so I felt like, again, it's easier to celebrate when there's other people there with you. It's like it actually exists. You know, it's not like when the tree falls, falls in a forest by itself. So it was really fun to have, you know, I'm reminded of how exciting it is when my kids can see it and their friends tell them they think it's cool. Like maybe we don't, they don't even know exactly what that means. When I was a kid, there weren't all these different awards. And that being said, we watched a lot more regular TV also. So we knew what was going on. Now we, we're, we don't watch everything that's on. But anyway, um, you know, it was a nice uh, recognition from my peers. It was, it's a nice thing, you know, when you, a lot of people make things and do things and have things in the works and everybody's always talking about what's in the works, but a lot of the people in your community sometimes don't accept that that's actually happening. But when you get a Grammy, everybody's like, oh yeah, you did make a record. Like it is actually happening. <laughs> um, so that was really nice. And also I was, I was proud because the record that was recognized um, is one that does have a lot of messages about respect, about your own, you know, realizing that everyone's small moments in their life are the important things. It's not all about, I don't talk about fame, but I talk about, you know, the small moments are really important. A lot of people lose their focus because of, uh, again, the internet and cult of celebrity and 
the, that's not what's important. It is important to realize your kid is tying their shoe or, you know, you saw a sunshine that you really liked. Like those are the moments that really, it's your food, it's your daily life. So um, the record has a lot of things that I think are important, you know, understanding your emotions, accepting yourself, accepting other people. Again, very inspired by Free to Be You and Me. So I was excited that the Grammy won for that record. Hopefully there'll be more. Yeah, you don't you don't make it uh, decades in the business without the hard work, obviously without the talent. But you you still seem so you seem so grounded about everything and and, and just very appreciative about everything. You know, I, I really am. And again, like I have, I'm lucky because I have a lot of people in my life who've been with me my whole life, and you know they remind me. Oh, remember you know when you were 14 and writing that song, or you wrote the graduation song for high school class, or um, I was recently on a television show and they cast me in the show as myself, but not necessarily because of the success I have now, but they were fans of mine in college. So they wanted me to be in the show now, which is really cool. You know, like, um, and I, I get to be, I'm in a position where I get to keep experiencing things and the ups and downs, you know, like sometimes it's great and it feels really successful. Other times it's frustrating because I've got like this great idea and it's just not coming together for some reason. Um, but I get so many cool opportunities. I recently wrote a song for James Patterson for his novel. Um, that was like the theme song for the book. We've got to get it out there more, but he personally asked me to like write this song. We worked with him to write this very um, anthemic, sort of almost musical theater pop number um, that was very different from what I would normally do. But it's it's cool. It really is connected with people in a certain way. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm lucky. I get to try a lot of different things, so it's it really is exciting. And I get to make a living doing what I'm doing, and that really helps too. Because I think when that goes away, then it's like, uh, what am I going to do next? But yeah, I'm lucky I get to go play concerts and make records and, and do voiceovers and just do a bunch of different things. For people wondering, yes, you are wearing the glasses. Yes. Uh, that's still a big part of what you do. Uh, coffee line too, uh, different uh, food lines. But one thing you recently did, I just thought was, even for you, sort of surprised me. Although I guess not, because it's related to words and writing. You worked on a crossword puzzle for the New York Times yeah. 75th anniversary? Two, actually, gosh, it was two years ago now. It was the 75th anniversary of the New York Times and I got an email from Will Shorts who's like, oh my gosh, it's like Mick Jagger of crosswords. <laughs> like he, he's the editor of the New York Times crossword and he said that they were getting different celebrities together to, to collaborate on crosswords. So I got to write a crossword with somebody um, and it was really cool. It was kind of like writing a song. The other person knew way more what they were doing than I did, but it was really, it was surreal, you know, seeing my name as a byline on a crossword puzzle. I got to write this, the crossword with Doug Peterson, who's had a number of crossword puzzles in the New York Times. He also does all the ones in Southwest Airlines, but he was really cool to work with. More crossword puzzles or songwriting easy after that? Oh my gosh. The crossword, I would love to try to do another crossword, but I, it's really, I, I couldn't do it. I, I don't think I could write one on my own. I, I don't have that skill yet but it was like writing songs because you had to come up with collaborative collaboratively come up with with uh words with answers you come up with the answers and then you come up with the clues so it was kind of poetic coming up with some of the clues right all right well uh, lisa congratulations on uh 25 years of stay i missed you but obviously as we've just been talking about so much more uh, in that time uh, span and and going forward yeah it's really exciting oh and also look out for camp lisa my camp lisa foundation you can donate money to send kids to summer camp Lisa Loeb, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it.
come this way. You say I talk so all the time. So And I thought what I felt was simple. And I thought that I don't belong. And now that I am leaving, now I know that I did something wrong because I missed you. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.